From 1788 until 1976, almost a 1,000 people, mostly women, mostly working class, sued their former heartthrobs and they often won compensation under the Breach of Promise of Marriage Act. It's a fascinating insight into aspects of our lives that, that are often shrouded in mythologies about romance or feelings of shame. Who'd have thought that dusty court archives could lay bare this rebellious, illicit, subversive power of love and money? Let's be frank about this. I'd love to hear if there's something in your family history that uh, reflects this, that someone took someone else to court for breach of promise of marriage. Dr Alicia Simmons is a senior law lecturer at the University of Technology, Sydney, and her new book is very fat and it's called Courting, An Intimate History of Love and the Law. Dr. Simmons, great to have you on the program. Hi, Hilary. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Tell us a bit about the Breach of Promise of Marriage Act. How did it work? Um, so it's an it's an action in common law. It has its origins in the ecclesiastic courts in the medieval period. So it goes all the way back to the 5th century uh, where you used to be able to turn up um, to the ecclesiastic courts and... Um, complained that you'd been jilted and the remedy in that instance was specific performance which in this um, which in that instance meant that you would be that your partner would be forced to marry you and uh, that was actually the case in the in the Cape Colony in South Africa all the way through the 19th century um, but that ended up changing around the time of the interregnum sort of 1700s uh, the ecclesiastic courts um, shut down and people instead to start to sue in the common law courts um, under contract so they say that there has to have been a promise of marriage that's been unjustifiably broken and the remedy is no longer um, that your partner is going to be forced to marry you. It's instead that they will be forced to compensate you very significant damages. Well, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's hard to see getting someone who doesn't want to marry you to marry you as a win from a modern (laughs) perspective. But as you argue, this was not about making people happy. This was about regulating social mores, wasn't it? Yeah, it's about regulating social mores. It's also a different notion of marriage. You know, people in the past accepted that there was an economic foundation to it. And if you think about women in this time, you've got a sexed labour market that pays you uh, probably around half less than men. You're, you're not able to to work um, in most jobs. You can find a domestic service or being a seamstress or things like that. So marriage is really the only um, legitimate economic and social vocation um, for women at this stage. So well, not being, all women, though, was it? I mean, some women uh, worked all the time and, and were able to work, uh, I guess, in on the land. Are we absolute, looking mainly yeah. at the kind of middle classes here? Yeah, absolutely. Look, at you know, uh, sure, women are working, but, you know, if you've got a child, you're not going to be able to support them just on your um, on your salary, whether you're working class or middle class. Um, you know, you're going to be dependent upon family support. So I think the main point to get from it is that um, it's a serious injury. You know, it's a serious economic loss if someone has broken your um, if someone's broken your heart and has broken the promise of marriage if they're not going to marry you anymore. Also, you're you're considered to be damaged goods. Um, 
um, a little bit. So so part of the reason why they had such serious, um, you know, amounts of damages and compensation for it was that it was meant to be a kind of dowry um, that you would take with you and hopefully the next person would overlook the fact that you'd had this rather humiliating, um, you know, court process and will marry you all the same. So, yeah, I mean, you know, definitely um, working class women are working, you know, throughout this time, but you try bringing up a child on, you know, 10 shillings a week or whatever mm. you paid, I mean, even less, um, as a working class woman, you just can't. Um, so, no, it, it is meant to kind of set you up for life. I was really stunned to learn that this fifth century legal idea stayed on the books until 1976 in Australia yes. in various <laughs> forms. How, how did you become interested in this law? I mean, your your area was um, feminist law, wasn't it? Yeah, I was always um, I was always interested, firstly in how women called upon the law and the state to intercede between them and the men in their lives, usually nasty men in their lives, you know, abusive husbands or things like that. I think that largely the history of feminism is is about women calling upon the state, you know, to, to help them kind of uh, obtain some degree of economic or bodily autonomy. Um, and often, you know, they had a pretty hard time of it. The law wasn't particularly uh, great to them. I mean, you know, rape cases, it's generally women weren't believed. Um, you know, they had an, a pretty nasty time in court. And so um, I was interested when I was ferreting around in sort of um, the early 19th century cases to find this action uh, for breach of promise of marriage, which seemed to be an exception to everything that I'd learnt um, about women's engagement with the law in this period in that all of these women are winning. Um, and on top of that, the other part that I really loved about it was that they just don't fit the stereotype at all of how you imagine a 19th century lady. Um, you know, that the action itself is premised upon the idea that they're damsels in distress, that they've, you know, got these broken hearts and and it allows the, the judge and the jury to come in very chivalrously and, you know, punish the perfidious cad and, and you know, um, save them. But in fact, when you look at the way that these women are behaving in court, they've got so much agency. They're so angry. Um, you know, I just love the fact that they didn't conform to any of those notions of passive, modest femininity. Um, you know, here they are in the most public arena suing a man for money. Um, you know, it just... It just goes against what we imagine ladies in the 19th century to be like. Though there was a case from 1920, wasn't there, involving a pair of dance partners that shows the expectations on women when it came to performing this heartbreak for the court so that they could step in chivalrously. Absolutely. I love the vaudeville act actors. <laughs> so that's, yes, <laughs> that's one of the, um, that's one of the cases which I used to talk about, you know, I was really interested in the history of heartbreak, and I bring that out in that in that particular chapter. I'd never thought about heartbreak as having a history, I guess. And through this action, you know, when you follow the one action over a long period of time, you start to see distinct changes in the way that people respond to having a broken heart. So in the 19th century, for the most part, women would... Uh, shriek, they dissolve into tears, there was a lot of somnambulism, a lot of descriptions of them sleepwalking and crying, sisters saying that they can't sleep because, you know, their um, sister or whatever is, you know, heartbroken. So that was the general reaction and they generally didn't have to prove that they had suffered a heartbreak in the 19th century because it was just assumed that you've suffered. Um, by the 1920s, which is when we see the vaudeville um, uh, dancers come in, 
you, you can no longer entirely assume that. You know, you've got this competitive dating arena going on. You've got women working. Those vaudeville actors in particular, she's she's having quite a bit of money. So you can't really argue anymore that, you know, your entire life's ruined um, because this guy broke your heart or jilted you or whatever. Um And so at the precise moment, I think that women actually start to suffer less in an economic sense, they're asked then to prove they're suffering more. And so so what I found fascinating in this period is that they start to claim bodily injuries um, uh, caused by heartbreak. They bring in doctors um, to say that they have diagnosed this particular person with heartbreak. Um, a doctor will give um, evidence about the symptoms, you know, pulse 93, greyish pallor, unable to eat, um, definitely suffering from heartbreak. I recommend three to six months um, off work while she recovers. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, bring it back. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, by 1911, you have heartbreak as a distinct cause of illness in the Inspector General for the Insane's report. Um, I mean, for that chapter in particular, I actually went to the asylum records as well and was like, is this just women... I I wanted to know, is this just women turning up in court and saying, and this happened suddenly sort of around the 1920s, sort of saying, you know, I've lost sight in one eye, um, I can't move my arm because of heartbreak, you know, these bodily symptoms... um, And I wanted to know whether that was just them or whether this is going on elsewhere. And I did find when you go to the asylum records, for for instance, in Melbourne, you've got the Yarrabend Asylum. And from about the 1890s onwards, women start to, there are these records of women um, suffering shock from reflecting for three days on the character of her lover, Um, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and so they're put in the asylum for it. you know, that they're, yeah, that that they're seen as having these kind of nervous breakdowns that are caused by heartbreak. What I think it is, I mean, for the most part, they're suffering nervous shock. And I think that it's a fascinating moment where they are appropriating the language of shell shock used in war and appropriating it for their own broken hearts, for their own kind of, yeah. And doctors are going along with it. I mean, it's a really interesting moment where they recognise the psychosomatic harms. Mm. Um, This this book is full of really fascinating insights into (laughs) the different ways that we used to think. It's called Courting, An Intimate History of Love and the Law by Dr Alicia Simmons, who's our guest today. Alicia, you mentioned before that women mainly won. Would you call this Breach of Promise of Marriage Act a feminist law in the modern sense, just because women generally got the compensation they were seeking? Yeah, I think it's a paradox, really. You know, on the one hand, the law says um, it imagines women as entirely dependent upon marriage. It it rewards them if they are able to perform, um, you know, being distressed or kind of, you know, in in court, they have to do a convincing performance that they have been... um, you know, uh, completely or that their feelings have been lacerated, you know, by this. And it's premised upon the idea that marriage is, I think Byron put it, you know, marriage is for women, um, you know, their entire life kind of thing. For man, it's just, you know, it's just one little part of it. Um, And so... 
you know, so on that on that level, it's completely anti-feminist. It suggests that you've got no role in the public sphere. That your main main role is, you know, is is in the private sphere, and it's it's around marriage and you know your dependence upon men. However, if you look at the way that it's being used, um, you've got these women, as I said, you know, being very gutsy, standing up in court and going, "J'accuse," you know, you over there, you have not just broken my heart, but um, you know, I spent all this money on my trousseau. The the particularly feminist part, I think, of this action and the part that I was stunned to find, I didn't expect to see it, is that women start to sue on their domestic labour um, throughout. So it's kind of around, when is it, sort of the 1910s um, and 20s, uh, you have women claiming under the category of special damages. So they've they've already claimed that they've got lacerated feelings, that's the general damages, and then they claim on top of that that the damages should be inflamed by the fact that they have performed all this domestic labour for their partner. So there's one woman, for instance, Kathleen Brown. In 1922, she sues a man called Charles um, Shearston for the 10,000 dinners that she cooked him over the course of a 22-year engagement. A 22-year engagement. 22-year engagement. He's still not marrying her and at the end he jilts her and she says, fine, I want money back for the dinners that I cooked you. <laughs> at the very least. <laughs> exactly. I probably lost the sight in one eye and the use of my arm as well. <laughs> totally. And she wins. You know, there are other women who start to claim for their um, for the housekeeping. Laurie Lindsay claims for the fact that she, 1933, she's a, a bank teller and she claims for the fact that she looked after um, her partner's mother while she was sick. So caring labour. So I find it fascinating, fascinating in that, firstly, these are conversations that we're having right now um, around the economic valuation of care um, and the fact that it is completely gendered. It's women who end up doing it and we're given no compensation or financial compensation for it. What we find if we look in into the past is the fact that actually these working class women totally understood the costs of their, their labour and they're claiming for it. And the other interesting part I think with that is that as a historian, I'm used to thinking of that as something that bourgeois women argued for around, say, the you know wages for housework campaign in the 1970s, or um, you know feminist activists in the 1930s start to make these claims. And I think that what this actually suggests is that it's working class women a lot earlier who are used to receiving money for their domestic labour, um, who who are actually the first people to make these arguments. And it, yeah, it kind of makes sense because it's not such a leap for them to go, I should be paid for this. They've been, for years, they've been paid for the domestic labour. Yeah. And I can't um, get by without being paid for the domestic labour and I've absolutely. wasted a lot of my life. Yes. Let's look at Thank some you. of the um, specific periods in uh, colonial Australia, sure. European settlement Australia, because they, they reflect really interesting things, the different cases we find there. Uh, yep. What happens in the very early days of the colony? I understand there's, there's not much going on in terms of breach of promise of marriage. Yeah, I found this really interesting because if you go to Britain or Canada or America at this stage, breach of promise of marriage actions are, um, you know, are very common um, and, and people are suing, you know, en masse around that time. And yet in Australia, the very first case that I found was in 1806 um, and that was curious in that it was um, a woman's father who claimed that his feelings had been lacerated um, by the fact that his daughter was jilted. And then the next case is not until 1823, um, 
and so you start the 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 action with this curious absence. Um, unlike the rest of the world, people aren't suing around it. And it's not because in the early colony they were cowed by the courts. These are literally the most litigious people that Australia has ever seen. <laughs> you know, you go to the court of civil jurisdiction records, they're suing over someone taking their cabbages. Um, you know, a woman claims that somebody else had taken her kittens. They go to court over everything. They love the courts. You know, it's a, it's a sort of extension of the pub um, in some ways. They're kind of constantly having these debates. And yet they're not for breach of promise. And... I think that that is largely, in fact, entirely about the fact that they just don't care about marriage um, and about state-sanctioned marriage at this stage. Marriage is something that has to be enforced upon um, the Australian population. They look far more like us now. They're mostly engaging in de facto relations. Um, most of the children are born um, illegitimate. Um, and this isn't just the, the working classes. I mean, the working classes come here, you know, as convicts with this with this history of cohabitation. They prefer cohabitation. And you can imagine as a woman it makes sense. You're not going to lose your property, um, you know, if you cohabit with a guy. Mm. Um, on average, relationships last for about 10 years. Um, there's no possibility of divorce, at least legally at this time, and yet they're constantly putting um, advertisements in the newspaper saying that they self-divorce each other. Um, you know, I self-divorce this, this man. I'm no longer responsible for his debts. He's not responsible for mine. You you know, it's a really wild and, like, I find fascinating period. Well, and then, um, then comes the, the civilising push of the Victorian area. What happens then? Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, and so you kind of see from around the time of Governor, Governor Macquarie onwards that the governors arrive with very clear orders to enforce marriage um, and they make these proclamations around marriage. So... Um, Macquarie gives uh, benefits of property for those who marry and he denies inheritance rights for those who don't. It becomes um, quite difficult in many ways, both legally and also culturally, to not marry. Historians refer to it as a kind of cult of marriage that, that you see emerging. And the main reason for that is that, as you say, this, this idea of the civilising push, you know, they're trying to create a respectable society as it moves from a penal colony into um, a society based on free emigration. And of course, you know, to do that, you need to to get rid of the terrible, you know, reputation that Australia suffered at that time. It was seen as one vast brothel. You have like, you know, commission of inquiry after commission of inquiry going, God, what are we going to do about the immorality and vice of this of this colony? There's, you know, sodomy's rife. No one's getting married. Um, you know, prostitution's rife. Um, and so there's uh, an effort to, to enforce marriage, to create a moral society. And that also coincides with the rise of the bourgeoisie and the rise of evangelicalism, you know, at that time. And you see it around the empire. And it works, um, you know, so by... Up to a point. Yeah, sure. Up to a point. That's true, yeah. Up to a point. It works insofar as by the 1860s, you know, the, the vast majority of the, of the colony are marrying. But one of the things that I love about those breach of promise of marriage cases is that because they're the working classes who are bringing them, they also show these glimpses of this kind of countervailing sexual morality to bourgeois morality, um, you know, throughout them. Just these, these sort of moments where, you know, you'll have someone on the stand and they'll say, they'll be asked, you know, do you consider, for instance, in, in Melbourne, the very first breach of promise case was a case involving a woman 
um, Miss O'Gorman, who was a notorious brothel owner from um, from Tipperary. And this guy is asked, you know, do you think that she's a woman of good character? And he says, yes, absolutely. You know, excellent businesswoman. Um, you know, everyone knows that she's a brothel owner. And, and, all, and this guy has previously given testimony about, oh, yes, I walked in there once and I saw her lying down on a bed with this, you know, guy and they seem to be playing with each other. And, oh, yes, very, very good character. But pillar um, of the community. I mean, yes, pillar of the community. Business sense. I was talking with Alicia Simmons and I I feel like we could talk all day about this. There is so much in this book that illuminates, you know, the way we think. But I want to get to a couple of key cases before we finish up in a few minutes, Alicia. Sure. There's the the case that shows us a bit about race relations in Australia because we move, you know, in the book through the Victorian era, through this period of the late 1880s and then through the World War One of great social upheaval and globalisation, mobility. What does Lucas V. Palmer show us? Lucas V. Palmer is a fascinating case. I I loved it. Um, So I was interested in that case in that um, Lucas, James Lucas, um, is one of the few men to sue for breach of promise of marriage. Um, And he sues a white woman, Clara Palmer, who he has met in Hong Kong um, and then pursued all the way to Australia uh, in in love, and then you know says actually after she she um, says that she doesn't want to marry him, um, he then takes her to court, and I found it interesting for two reasons. Firstly, if you place it in the context of um, all of the cases, and I dug out quite a few um, that concerned either mixed marriages or mixed romances, and by mixed I mean, you know, interracial, um, or cases that were, say, a Syrian, two Syrians, you know, suing each other. That's another one of the cases that I look at. Um, It shows a, a distinct shift in how people became concerned about um, about race and about about racial mixing, I suppose, the way in which love is used to kind of um, to to govern and to demarcate those kind of um, love is used to demarcate those sort of racial differences. And so I found it interesting in this case in that you see from say the 1850s onwards um, a change in people's responses to these relationships. So with Lucas V. Palmer, when his case goes to the courts, and this is the 1890s, there's a kind of amused curiosity about it. Um, No one really knows how to describe him. Some call him um, an East Indian. Another one calls him a Bengali. Um, Some people don't even comment on his race. And, And to my mind, I found that interesting because this is, you know, the lead up to the white Australia policy. Um, it's a period that I imagine to be characterised by quite virulent racism, um, you know, in the lead up to that. And yet that's not what you see here. And I, you know, that that comes, but it doesn't really come until sort of the 1910s, 1920s. So it's interesting looking at the way in which notions of romantic love as being sort of or the West as being the natural homeland of the of romantic love 
that that develops over time, that it's not necessarily there, um, you know, from the outset, that actually people are quite open to this case. And interestingly with him, he wins his case, um, you know, walks out with quite significant damages. Wow. So that just didn't fit what I what I imagined, I guess, um, of the way in which race was, was dealt with and interracial relations were dealt with. What I found, however, was that by the 1920s, when you have a Japanese man suing a white woman, um, in that instance, there's absolutely outrage. What are these two people doing together? They're going to create a piebald breed of people. Um, you know, it's it's virulent racism, you know, by then. So it doesn't take long. It's sort of, you know, about 20 years. So I found it interesting from that perspective. It tells us a lot about the way that Australians deal with interracial love. But I, what I tried to do in the book was to tell their life stories. And with Lucas, what I found was actually you know, he was for, he's not an East um, Indian. In fact, he was from Gujarat. He's not um, he's not Hindu, as they thought. In fact, he was Parsi. And to that extent, he belonged to literally the most, some of the most litigious people, you know, in the world. Parsis were 0.6% of the population in Bombay, but they represented about 40% of court hearings. Wow. You know, at this that is time. an insight into legal history as well, but we've only got a minute <laughs> left. And I really oh, want yes, to ask sure. you, uh, you don't want to bring back the Breach of Promise Act, I, I understand from the book, but there, is there an alternative you'd like to see? Because I, I get the feeling you're saying it's not, you know, a, a completely good thing that this thing is not there anymore. Yeah, I think so. I think that there's so many instances now um, where, say, of catfishing or um, even in the paper the other day, they were talking about how many, how much money Australian lo- Australians lose to romantic fraud. Um, you know, there's so many instances of, of things like that where you can sue for the money. You might be able to sue for stalking, but you don't get anything for your emotional harm and your emotional injury. And that's a real part of that. Um, for instance, with the tort of deceit, you can sue quite easily if you're in a commercial relationship with someone. You can't if it's an intimate, you know, if it's an intimate relationship. Um, And so I would like to see, I guess, us recognise that emotional injuries are real and that they're legally compensable and that they're often a part of the injury that people experience when they have their money taken or when they're catfished or, you know, various things like that. So, yeah, I think that that there's room to kind of acknowledge the the emotional harms that people experience. The lacerated feelings. I'm compiling my <laughs> brief now. <laughs> Alicia, it's been absolutely fascinating chatting with you today and our text messages reflect that too. Thank you so much for oh, taking good. the time to come in and talk. Thank you, Hilary. It was a pleasure. Dr Alicia Simmons is a senior law lecturer at the University of Technology, Sydney, and the book is called simply Courting, An Intimate History of Love and the Law. It's a very lively read, very, very insightful. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.